Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. What is, I'm hot start today. What start. is the most memorable birthday you've ever had? Birthday. So Birthdays. I, it's really funny, first of all, that you bring this up because my birthday is on Sunday. Oh, happy early birthday. Cause I Thank won't, you. like, I probably won't remember on a day. No, I mean, also Sunday, like, yeah. yeah, just completely blocked me out of your life on the weekend. But yes. So anyway, so my birthday, but my most memorable birthday, I think is many years ago, I forced my husband to throw me a 1970s themed roller skating birthday. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. So like everybody dressed up and I did my hair, like I made my hair as big as I could. Where does one do something like this? Oh, well, we went to, we were living in Vermont. Okay. And there was a roller skating rink, ring, rink? Rink. Rink. Sounds so weird. Um, So there was like a, like a for real four, four on the floor roller skating rink. And yeah. And we like took it over. Are there pictures Um, of this? Yeah, I could probably find some. Yeah, you really ridiculous, some. silly ones because people were like all dolled up. Yeah, I, yeah. I went through a real phase of of themed birthdays for some reason as I mean, an adult. That, that, that sounds amazing. <laughs> the great thing about being an adult is you can do whatever you want. So right, if right. that's what you want to do, I mean, that's harmless. Force people to dress up in as hippies in the 70s, force people to dress up as pirates, whatever. That's fantastic. Yeah. What about you? So it's a bit of a cheat for me because it's not cheat. on my actual birthday proper. Though I don't know if your party was on your birthday proper. I don't think that's I, a cheat. Uh, well, yeah, tell okay. me first. Let okay. me be so, the judge. So for my 30th birthday, which was, I don't know, a handful of years ago now, I was in I was in New Orleans for an AGU meeting. Um, <gasps> I don't know if it was Oceans or if it was one of the primary ones. I forget. But I just happened to be there for AGU. And one of my sister-in-laws was also in the science policy space. She was there for work. And so my brother and my now wife, weird to say that, uh, came down to visit. And we hung out afterwards. And one night, the three of us, my my, uh, sister-in-law, unfortunately, ended up getting sick. But my brother and um, partner and I ended up at Pat O'Brien's. Do you know that Mm -hmm. in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. the piano bar? Okay. Yeah. So we ended up there, not in the piano bar part, just like in a sidebar. And there was a really big basketball game going on at the time. Partners Mm -hmm. really into sports. And so at one point throughout the evening, she makes friends with everyone at the bar because she's a very personable person. Of course. And something really big happens in this basketball game where my brother and I are talking and the entire bar erupts. And I look up and... She is running around this bar, just <laughs> high-fiving every single person <laughs> at the bar, people she's met an hour earlier. And in that moment, my we had been dating for about a year at this point. And in that moment, my brother looks to me, and I forget the like the exact words or lost of time, but he essentially says, like, I like this one. I, I think, I think she's I think she's the one for you. And he was he was obviously very right. And so that, oh that, that weekend and that whole experience will always like stick out to me. And actually like we at our wedding, which was now like a month ago, mm-hmm. we didn't have anybody tell speeches. We did our own speeches and yeah. I told that story as like part oh. of our wedding. And so now it's forever out there in the ether for everyone to enjoy. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Birthdays. Birthdays. <laughs> Science is fascinating, but don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. 
I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right. So I'm going to bring in the producer for this episode, Molly McGid. Hi, Molly. Hi, Shane. Molly, why are we talking about birthdays? Well, I thought we were going to talk about birthday candles. I have no idea why you took it in the direction that you did. <laughs> oh, Wait. Well, it's... <laughs> what? So we, we went through that and it wasn't even the real prompt? Okay, so uh, sometimes I take liberties with the script and we are going to move past that. <laughs> so, Molly, why are we talking about birthday candles? Right, well... It's a common tradition that involves fire. And this episode is all about the ritual use of fire for cultural burning. For many indigenous peoples, the use of fire is a part of life as well as being a tool for transformation of landscapes. I've heard about cultural burning. So it's been in the news a lot as a way to help prevent some of the large fires we've been seeing in the Western United States. Yeah, that's right. And to get some more information about cultural burning and indigenous fire stewardship, we talked with Amy Cardinal Christensen and Frank Kanawa Lake. Let's hear them introduce themselves. So I'm Amy Cardinal Christensen. I'm a Métis woman um, from Treaty 8 territory. So that's uh, northern Alberta, Canada. Um, My family's the Cardinal and Labakan families from um, Owl River Piasis band and then also the Duhamel or the sorry it's called Duhamel now but the Labakan settlement and I live in Treaty 6 right now in a town called Rocky Mountain House Alberta and I'm a mom of two little girls and I um, work for Parks Canada as an Indigenous fire specialist. My name is Frank Kanawa Lake I'm a research ecologist with the Pacific Southwest Research Station of the USDA Forest Service. I'm a Kruk tribal descendant and I live here in Northwest California. So we talked with Frank and Amy separately, but they touched on many of the same ideas. So we're weaving their interviews together for this episode. We'll start with Amy. We asked her what Indigenous fire stewardship means. Indigenous people across Canada have used fire in good ways on the landscape. And so we had, you know, before colonization, different times that we would burn, different techniques that we use for burning. And a lot of that was to achieve different cultural objectives on the ground. But a side benefit of that was that the fire would also reduce wildfire risk. But when colonization of Canada happened, we basically weren't allowed to do those practices. So with colonization came fire exclusion um, laws and fire suppression, where, you know, fire was looked at something that was bad to happen on the landscape. Um, And I think what we're seeing right now is, you know, lots of Indigenous communities have kept burning in secret. But others have like completely quit burn their burning practices. And I think right now there's been so many like terrible fire events, basically, that have really impacted many Indigenous nations across Canada. And I think lots of Indigenous people are saying, you know, that there was ways before that we would burn and, you know, reduce our fire risk, but also achieve these different things we wanted to achieve on the ground, like better grass for animals that we would hunt, better production of berries and medicinal plants. And yeah, I think that they're really looking to revitalize those practices and kind of reclaiming their right to burn in their territories so that their communities aren't as impacted by wildfire. So with my new job, a big part of that is just working with these nations that want to burn and trying to figure out ways 
that we can get fire back on the ground, that we can support Indigenous-led cultural fire practices. What did these fire mitigation practices look like historically, and why are they important? Sure. So for different Indigenous nations, like when settlers first came to Canada, you know, they would often make remarks like, oh, this looks like a park or, you know, like, you know, oh, we could drive our wagons kind of right through the forest. And they assumed in their mind that like that was natural or like a wilderness state of the forest. But really what we've come to know now is that it was actually like Indigenous managed land or Indigenous stewarded territory. And a lot of that stewardship was through fire. So not only like Indigenous people applying fire to the ground, but also, um, you know, in having wildfires that happen. So lightning caused fires that would then also manipulate the landscape. Uh, and I think so I worked with Peavine Métis Settlement for my PhD and they're located like in northern Alberta. And when I first went up there, you know, we were kind of just trying to look at how to make communities more resilient to fire. And that was there when I started. People would never talk to me about cultural burning. But then the second I, they found out they were related to me, you know, that was when all the stories came out because you can be fined. Right. And other things in Canada for burning um, without a permit or where you're not supposed to. So people are very hush hush about it still to this day. Um, yeah, as I started getting to know people, the most common thread was just, you know, that we need to clean the forest like we used to. And so that means like conducting these low intensity fires that usually happen in the understory. So under the trees or in meadows or other things that basically clean up the vegetation. So in wildfire like research, we call those fuels, like the things that, that a wildfire can consume. And it just makes sense. The less fuel that you have on a landscape to burn, the less big your fire will be, right? Like if you think of a campfire, you know, if you only burn a few pieces of wood, it's manageable. But if you try and burn like a whole spruce tree, you're going to get into like, <laughs> you might get into a bit of trouble. So that's um, basically what they were doing was just trying to use fire uh, to, well, to reduce fuel load. But as I said before, that was really a secondary thing that fire has many other benefits for Indigenous people. And probably the most common in um, Northern Canada is using fire to extend the growing season. So there, you know, we have frost in the ground a long time. The summer growing season is very short. So in the spring, you know, we've got like this dead matted grass that's on kind of, you know, that the snow melts out of, but it's, you know, really gross and pretty thick matted. Um, so they would go in and burn that and it would basically turn that black. And then that black would absorb the heat from the sun as well and really start heating the soil underneath which would then generate the plants quick or germinate the plants quicker so that the grass would come up earlier and it would really extend the growing season. So you get rid of all that dry dead grass and you have like great green grass that comes. And a benefit of that is that then, you know, deer come to that area because it's easy eating and moose and other things that our nations rely on. So it makes hunting a lot easier too. really sounds like fire is being used as a tool for all these beneficial things. Yeah, fire helps to promote biodiversity because what we're trying to do with fire is put like a mosaic on the landscape. So instead of having like 
one consistent type of vegetation or one consistent, you know, forest. We want to see different things in our forest, right? So that when we're going out and harvesting and gathering and other things, we don't have to go as far, you know, like if things are right around you. And some of my colleagues refer to it almost as like, you know, forest agriculture, like a forest orchard that you want around you. And, and you can't get that unless you're stewarding the land. What were some other beliefs about fire or what are some other beliefs about fire? Sure. So um, I think like for many Cree people and other Indigenous people, um, so my family is like the background is like Cree and, and French and Ojibwe. And so I think for those nations, like fire is viewed with a spirit so that like fire was sent to us by creator as like a helper on the land and that it can be used in a good way. Um, and so fire is used in a lot of our ceremonies. Like it's actually probably rare to have many Indigenous ceremonies without fire there. Um, like sometimes you might hear it referred to as sacred fires or other things. Like when you have like a sweat lodge or something else like that, you use fire to heat the rocks. Like it's just a, a really important part of life. Um, and then, you know, besides like the cooking aspect of it and keeping people warm in like northern Canada, you know, so so fire has always been a really important part of our lives. But I think, you know, it's some of those fires like that we use for ceremony and other things are much smaller in scale. But we also used fire, you know, on the landscape for much larger style of landscape uh, stewardship. Could you talk about what it's like to be at one of these burns? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Yeah, so I'd say the burns that I've been part of or been able to to um, witness are almost like community events. So like when you go on like a bad fire, you know, where there's like it's out of control, it's like almost like it's not frantic, but it's almost like, you know, there's aircraft everywhere. There's people on their radios. It's like, you know, high intensity environment. And I think that being on a cultural fire is the exact opposite of that. Like there's kids there, there's elders there, there's people just kind of talking and laughing and, you know, they'll light the fire. Some people will be on the fire. Others will just be watching. Like it's because of the, the like that it's generally a low intensity fire. It's more of like just a community gathering where people go out and learn, you know, watch how to burn, learn from the elders, tell stories so yeah, it's usually like quite a nice community building experience. I've heard an elder like Roland Duquette from Northern Saskatchewan from Peter Ballantyne Nation. He describes it as like, you know, having fires that we can walk beside. So, you know, you get out there and you light the fires. Lots of times the kids are involved. The kids will be, you know, helping to spread the fire and really teaching them um, instead of like this fear of fire that we've developed in, in lots of people, like more of a respect for fire. And, you know, that it can be dangerous if used in the wrong way. But, you know, the, the importance of, of using it right and respecting fire. So I think like, yeah, when you're on a cultural burn, that's kind of what it's like. It's um, basically they instead of like looking at a bunch of different scientific instruments and other things like, oh, should we burn today? Should we not? It's like the elders will just go out and be able to tell from different cues that they see in the landscape if it's a safe and a good time to burn. That sounds like a really lovely community event, and also contrary to the idea that fire is scary, so a fire you can walk beside doesn't seem dangerous at all. Right, well, Amy said that a fear of fire was brought by Europeans during colonization. 
they saw fire as something that could destroy forests and reduce the amount of timber they could sell. So they restricted its use. Yeah. So I was uh, I was wondering when we get to the mm. one of, I guess, many elephants in the room, uh, but European colonization. So how exactly did colonization change how these indigenous groups could use fire? Well, European colonization of North America often led to the prevention and even criminalization of cultural burning practices. Let's hear more about that from Frank. Well, here in particular in California, with the colonization by initially Spanish and then Americans, there was first, the, unfortunately, the atrocities of genocide and forced removal through the colonizers. And then one of the first laws that the Spanish instituted then are was that the missions was to prevent Indian burning. Another one of the first laws in California was to prevent native burning. And that in itself began to modify the fire regime because you were moving a huge element of fire on the landscape. And so there was the genocide, forced removal, colonization, the relocation of native people. And we see through different lines of scientific evidence, particularly the fire history studies, and now more so with other things like ethnographic information, repeat photography, that that began to change not only the composition and the structure, but at large landscape scale. So there's other studies across the Klamath Mountains and Sierra Nevadas that talk about it being fuel limited. And with the exclusion of tribal management and then the fire exclusion policies, not only were those early on some of the policies of both the, the Spanish and American governments, but then we had in 1911, the Weeks Act, that then set in a full suppression policy that then where you have those tribal territories that were public lands, there was a federal and state mandate to then start suppressing fires. And so even where there might've been forms of resistance through cultural burning or what was considered arson, there became a lot more militarized aspects of suppressing and excluding fire, but also imprisoning and targeting those quote arsonists as tribal people were often considered to have further fire removed from the landscape. Wow. I didn't realize it had such, it like it goes back basically to the beginning. You were saying that first law was about preventing fires. That's really interesting. Yep. It was very much targeted to remove native people from the resource on the landscape and to decouple them from one of their most efficient tools, which was fire. Hmm. That's that's really interesting. And that's played out in various lines of evidence. So unfortunately it's complex and it's multifaceted, but you start to think about one, Introduced diseases and outright genocide, reducing a large part of the population, anywhere from like 70 to 90% of Native people, there's your reservoir of knowledge. Then you have outright targeting Native peoples, both ceremonially and subsistence-wise for using fire. So out prohibiting and outlawing many of the ceremonies that tie to fire use. So there was another aspect of that. So you have, a, again, another loss of critical knowledge capacity within a community. And then we have things going through that colonial period through the Civil War, there was outright militias and others who went to go target Indians in the interest of the timber barons and miners and other colonial settler interest. That was another way in which knowledge was reduced and then the ability to carry on that knowledge. And then from there, you have relocation and federal and other policies that looked at re- relocating and educating Indians that further disconnected them from their place, utilizing fire. And then for you being a fire-dependent culture or Native people as fire-dependent cultures, then didn't have that ability to have that in the context of hunting, gathering, resource tending, getting the appropriate traditional foods and basket materials and wildlife that you use for food and regalia, 
and then also not having the ceremonial aspects of it. And so there was a lot of policies and actions by the federal and state governments to limit Native people's use of fire, but also their relationship with fire. And with that, so went the knowledge in the intergenerational teaching. And so today, a lot of that knowledge is both being recovered by tribes, but also for those tribal communities that held on to it, are trying to be able to now come to a safe space where they can share their knowledge and relate that as part of the cultural fire regime and as part of the restoration strategies and for eco-cultural revitalization. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, I mean, that sounds like the, the kind of typical colonization playbook, um, disenfranchising indigenous groups, removing them from their land, preventing them from engaging in cultural practices. Yeah, and both Amy and Frank work with government agencies in Canada and the U.S. So what I'm wondering is how do these agencies begin work with indigenous groups, given the fraught history and violence perpetuated by the government? That's a good point. It involves a lot of reckoning with and acknowledging that history before moving forwards with an equitable partnership with Indigenous groups. We have to face some hard truths about the effects of colonization and, and the settler Indigenous dynamics that happen on our landscapes as far as fire-prone ecosystems. I think one of the most important aspects of what I've found from my work is Again, the historical acknowledgement of what's happened to tribes that have happened as part of that reconciliation process that will then lead to the repatriation of that cultural knowledge and practice. We're beginning now with the increased effects of climate change or our climate crisis that's coupled with drought and fires, increased densification of trees and fuel loads. We're seeing more extreme fire events and I think that all has precipitated in this awareness of, well, what can we do to learn to live with fire? And beginning to understand that indigenous people as fire-dependent cultures within each of their fire-prone ecosystems had a way in which they understood that through millennia and generations. And so how does this America society now come to terms with their own colonial settler history, working with indigenous people, learning to live with fire, and finding common solutions so that way we can all be co-beneficiaries of that shared knowledge and experience and work together. When you talk about Indigenous fired stewardship, in these projects, are Indigenous groups able to take the lead and sort of reclaim their practices and putting fire back onto the land? How is that that process? Well, I think part of the the structure and the approach is to look at again, tribes as co-leads in these restoration partnerships. And then as on behalf of their constituents or their tribal membership is to then be able to have those restoration efforts be beneficial to the tribal community. And so one of my model examples that I have in my frameworks is, you know, we incorporate indigenous knowledge into our scientific methods, our studies. So we're studying basket material. What do we study and why? If we're studying traditional foods, what's the effects of fuels and fire treatments on that? And then from that level, we think about prioritizing where we treat and why. So often there's an emphasis on wildland urban interface. Many of those villages historically are now tribal, our, our towns are part of the tribal and, and public community. Looking at what used to be along the tribal ridge trail systems are now roads and where we manage wildfire or can use fire from. 
and then also have their community members or descendants like myself and my family be the beneficiaries of that. So I see the partnerships doing like the heavy lifting and those initial kind of corrective actions that then get the forest or that particular habitat into a condition where tribal stewardship can come in and begin to take place again. So the key is to form these partnerships and make sure tribal stewardship is maintained. Right, and that's the reason that both Frank and Amy say they love doing their jobs. As Indigenous people, they are able to advocate for their communities to do this burning. Okay, so how are the landscapes changing when communities are allowed to do these cultural burns? It's an interesting question. Amy talked about how scientific evidence is a Western idea. And so to even evaluate these cultural burns, we might have to rethink what counts as evidence. So it's quite interesting because lots of times, like with agencies and things, you know, they'll want to see proof that cultural burning works. And lots of times they'll want that proof in the terms of like Western scientific studies, right? So they want to see like, you know, tree ring studies that prove that we were burning, you know, historically. And then they'll want to see like fire effects monitoring or other things that show that we're like achieving the effects that we want. But I think for many Indigenous people, like those stories have always been with our elders. And so for me, that's sometimes frustrating because, you know, there's just a lack of respect for the knowledge that our elders carry just because it's not published in a scientific journal. So I think for most people, like for Indigenous burners, like a, a big thing is after they burn, like does it improve or enhance their cultural practice, right? So when they go and burn, you know, does it bring deer to an area? Does it remove some of the invasive species that they don't want to see? You know, are there better medicinal plants growing? What's the berry quality like? Like, are the berries bigger and plumper? But lots of that is just based on like, you know, Indigenous knowledge. So observational assumptions that we're seeing of the land and, you know, not published. And I think that that's where there's a bit of a disconnect right now because agencies want to see all that published stuff. Many nations, you know, some of them are publishing or, you know, partnering with, you know, universities and other things to kind of, you know, get proof, like, quote unquote, that 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 like we're achieving what we want to achieve and reducing virus. But there's many other nations I know that are refusing that because they're just saying like the knowledge is shown in our communities and our elders, you know, and that that's like good enough for us. We don't need to spend all this money on, you know, all this scientific Western scientific studies. So. Yeah, it's, it's a bit interesting and a part of the dilemma, I think, that many Indigenous nations go through in trying to get their knowledge systems recognized. And Frank says that measuring success through this sort of scientific evidence is based on the idea that ecosystems provide services for us, not on the tribal philosophy that humans should work to make those ecosystems more resilient. So we think about, you know, ecosystem services and what we can derive from them. Much of the tribal philosophy, particularly around indigenous fire stewardship, is human services for ecosystems and how we can promote that and increase that resistance or resilience that then also increase quantity and quality of water, which is one of our main values. Human services for the ecosystem, that is such an important perspective. And I agree that I think the dominant Western perspective, perhaps, or 
just the dominant perspective in science that gets heard is the one about ecosystem services for humans, but we need to start thinking the other way. Well, and an important aspect of that, when we talk about climate adaptation and reducing our vulnerability, is to look at the human agency of being that one that can promote and enact that adaptive capacity. So many, another aspect of my work on the climate change and forestry and fire part is the adaptation plans that talk about, you know, foresters or managers will do this for tribal people. It's like, well, who is that? If you don't have adequate funding, if you don't have the capacity for those foresters and managers, then how's that work going to get done? For tribal people, it's about access to their ancestral territory and those resources. It's about active engagement. It's about opportunity to lead the stewardship and to be, again, the ones who are directly increasing the resistance and resilience of the resources as species, those habitats that are culturally valued and favored across different ecosystems and across those communities as our adaptive capacity. And then not only informing that through the rekindling of that knowledge, but setting up our future generation for success to have that adaptive capacity so they're just not overwhelmed by the climate crisis or the threats of wildfire. It seems that this is really about what type of knowledge we say is scientific and valid to be used as evidence. And there's definitely a larger conversation to have about recognizing and valuing Indigenous knowledge. It also sounds like we need to make sure Indigenous people are the ones able to set the fires. They should be the main beneficiaries also. Yeah, Amy talked about how having Indigenous people at the center of these practices is really important to make sure that cultural burning is sustainable. I think right now what we really need to see is just a, almost like an understanding of what Indigenous burning is. I think many people, especially in welfare agencies, just don't understand what it is like and what we're trying to achieve and what we want to do. Even the general public, I think sometimes when they hear about like cultural burning, they just equate that with prescribed fire and imagine us like trying to burn up the side of a mountain, you know, and not wearing personal protective equipment and all these different things. So that's one real big thing that I think lots of us are working on is just getting that messaging out there. Like, well, what is good fire? How can it be used? And then the other thing is really having Indigenous leadership in this area. So, you know, recognizing the knowledge of Indigenous people and like trying to avoid, obviously, knowledge appropriation of cultural burning practices. Like, I guess, yeah, technically anybody could come and like learn from a fire keeper, like how to to burn an area. But, you know, if you're not sustaining culture with that, then it's not really a cultural burning practice. And it also, to me, becomes like a major social justice issue. Like Indigenous people basically had fire ripped out of their hands, right? And then if we're going to start saying, yeah, we need more fire on the landscape, like in a like social justice sense, shouldn't it be Indigenous people then that we return that flame to, to be able to do that? And so I see like, sometimes that's hard for me because I see a lot of excitement from other folks like, oh yeah, I want to burn. I want to learn this. I want to do these things. But then I continuously see Indigenous people sidelined and unable to do it. So from, yeah, for me, I think that's just where it's really important as well to share that this is also like about social justice and reconciliation, you know, as much as it is about fire. Is there concern that, you know, if people go out and try and do this work um, without having that knowledge base, without being Indigenous, without knowing what they're doing, then and calling it 
like cultural burning, then that will sort of dilute the idea of what actual cultural burning is and like potentially maybe even if something goes out of control because they don't understand what's what they're doing, then it might make it a little bit harder to do cultural burning in the future. Yeah, I think like for indigenous people, like my own nation too, like we're just so used to being everything being colonized or like taken from us, appropriated. And so I think that with fire, I think it's one thing that we feel like more defensive over because it's like something that it kind of, you know, in ways it has with like, you know, prescribed burning and other things that you see, like kind of that's a take on cultural burning. But I think that that's, you know, for many people, like it's a red flag when agencies come and say, you know, we want you to come and teach us about your cult, like cultural burning, because I think it's just another thing that we could just see, you know, being removed from us and becoming completely out of our control. Whereas really fire is a tool that can lead to Indigenous sovereignty, that can lead to land back, right? And all these other movements that we're trying to achieve. So for example, like if you're burning your territory and it's non-government recognized, but the government says like you can, okay, you can burn there, then that's basically almost an admission that that's your territory, right? So then what does that lead into in the future? And so I think that that's why many governments are also super cautious about burning and who can burn where, because it's a much bigger thing than just like, you know, starting a fire somewhere. It's about sovereignty. <laughs> that's really interesting. And it sounds like that has to do with some of that like historical legislation, like who's allowed to burn where, what does that mean? What does territory mean? Does it mean yep. you're burning on there, you're allowed to be there, things like that? Yeah, so for right now in Canada, like First Nations can burn on their reserves. Like, you know, they, they technically have control of that, so they can do what they want. There still is like agencies often try to, you know, oversee that and like, you know, make sure that they're doing it in a proper way. But, you know, Indigenous nations are reserves are very small, like compared to the actual Indigenous territories of many of the nations. And so I think that's one thing that many want to see, because, you know, we're never going to be able to achieve like this kind of biodiversity on the landscape by like, you know, doing small patch burns on small reserves. This is much more about like that we need landscape level cultural fire. And so the only way we're going to get that is through recognition of territory. I honestly didn't expect a conversation that, I mean, frankly, started with about talking about birthdays and birthday candles, acknowledging your prom, Molly, to end up at social justice. But honestly, I, I'm really happy that it did. Me too. And I learned so much about fire as a tool to shape landscapes and to bring communities together. Yeah. And a little bit of a fun fact, Amy and Frank actually know each other through their work. And they both said that getting to work with other Indigenous people who are burning and building community, it's the best part of their jobs. Yeah, I mean, honestly, one of the one of the things I like most about my job is getting to work with folks like Vicky. Aww. Vicky, it's great working with you Aww. and Molly and our podcast team and all the different scientists that we interview. Oh, we like you too, Shane. Gross. All right. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> we need to end this before it gets too sappy. So with that, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much to Molly for bringing us this story and to Amy and Frank for sharing their work with us. This episode was produced by Molly with audio engineering from Colin Warren. Art by Jay Steiner. 
We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Please rate and review us. And you can find new episodes on your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all. And we'll see you next week. With this prompt, did you have any other birthdays that came to mind? Um, the one that came to mind was is not actually my birthday. It's the pirate-themed birthday party that I uh, made for my husband when we lived in Vermont also. Did he want a pirate-themed um, birthday? He mentioned in passing months <laughs> prior to his birthday, we were in a grocery store and we were at like the cake counter and there was a big kid's cake that had like a hollowed out chunk and had like a blue jello. It was a pirate cake and it was a hollowed okay. out chunk and it had like a blue jello C. Okay. And Brian was like, oh, that's a cool cake. <laughs> so don't ever say things like that to me.